Hey gang, uh, good morning. It's Eric, glad to be with you. We are coming to the final day of our look in the book of Job this morning. Uh, sorry for running a bit late today. There's been all sorts of things conspiring against uh, our time here today. First of all, I'm still getting over a cold or some sort of sickness, so you can probably hear that in my voice right now. Uh, so I'm running a little slower. And then this horrific daylight saving time issue, by the way, good morning, Bonnie, um, you know, makes everything run on a different level than it should for the first few days. Uh, one of my sons said today after waking up late, uh, it's not my fault that I'm going to be late for school. It's time's fault. That is a fantastic saying, by the way. It's not my fault. It's time's fault. Indeed, it's time's fault. So, so again, forgive me for running late, <clears throat> uh, but we're going to get to the end of Job today. Good morning, Danielle and Glenna and Brian. I see a few of you out there. Um, so um, we're sort of right smack dab in the middle of God's response to Job. And uh, I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 41, and then we'll read chapter 42 and come to the end of our time. So, so just to bring us back up to speed, in chapters uh, 38, 39, and 40, uh, God is basically responding to Job's complaints. And he says, uh, chapter 41, verse 1, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Leviathan was, uh, you know, most scholars aren't sure, but some say it was the whale, another name for the whale. It could be, you know, some other sort of sea monster that we don't know about after all. We don't really know that much about the sea. Um, or press down his tongue with a cord. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Uh, will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me, who is given to me, that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So that's the thrust of God's response to Job over and over and over again. He's reminding him of his power and his ability uh, to watch well over his world. Now let's get to Job chapter 42 and hear what happens as a response to God's uh, words. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust 
and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. See, Job is all of a sudden used as a mediator here. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And we'll stop there. The rest is just sort of a detailing of all the things that God has given him. So, the big question of the book of Job. Just tell me why. Why all of this suffering? It does not take a very astute observer of this story to notice a very troubling thing. And that is, that question. In all the time that God responds to Job... That question is not answered. God never answers Job's why question. The one question that everyone's cried out to know in this story and throughout, frankly, human history when suffering comes upon us is that question. Why? 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 We want an explanation. And yet, I'm telling you, scan all you want. Look as closely as you want. Translate the Hebrew yourself and you're still not going to find any specific reason given to Job for his specific suffering at the time. It's just not there. And I don't think that's accidental. Uh, nor do I think it's divine oversight. I, I believe in God's response or non-response maybe to the question, we learn something. We learn that as God reminds Job of his power, his wisdom, his might, his ability, and his care, he is also showing Job that he in all his grandeur is with Job through the suffering, and what he is saying to Job and to us through his response is that his presence is enough. If there's a takeaway from this book as to how God deals with our suffering or how he answers our questions about suffering, it is not that he chooses to give an explanation, but rather a revelation. Sorry, I'm not meaning to be uh, cute cutesy with the rhymes, but that really is the case. He does not give the explanation, but he gives a revelation of himself. And so what happens when God reveals himself to Job and to anyone, for that matter, in their suffering? Well, first of all, we clearly grow in our understanding of God. Look at what happens to uh, Job. After God's lengthy response revealing how awesome he is, uh, Job's understanding of him changes dramatically. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, he is saying, I, I thought I knew you before, but now that you've revealed yourself to me this way, I, I feel like I know you on a whole different level. Now, why is that so important? Well, because our natural proclivity is to do what the philosopher Ludwig Forbach said humans do. To make God in our own image. We want to make God just like us. God becomes the sum of the things we wish were true. 
He wrote, quote, he wrote this to describe his view, quote, God is the love that satisfies our wishes, our emotional wants. He is himself the realized wish of the heart, the wish exalted to the certainty of its fulfillment, of its reality, end quote. So in this view, God then becomes whatever we want him to be in the moment. But a God who allows or even ordains suffering, like in the story of Job, crushes that tendency. We would never create such a God out of our own wish fulfillment. That tendency to create a God, of course, is what we call, it's what we call <laughs> idolatry. As John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. You've all probably heard that before. Every one of us is prone to building these idols. And one of the great idols we have is the idol of explanation. We want to be able to explain away the why question in a way that's nice and tidy. But God knows better. God knows that what we really need is to be reminded of who he is. You see, it's one thing to know about God in a theoretical sort of way. It's a whole other thing to know him personally, to know him as he actually reveals himself in the scriptures. So, to help maybe give an illustration of what I mean, imagine you're the son or daughter of a soldier who has been on the battlefield and then in a POW camp for the first 10 years of your life. Uh, you know that you do indeed have a father, but you've never actually met your father in person. However, due to what your mom tells you about your father and a few scattered pictures, you come to find out that he has brown hair, he has blue eyes, uh, that he's 175 pounds, that he's 5 foot 11 tall, 5 foot 11 inches tall, and at one time worked as a security guard, and he grew up in Topeka, Kansas. There's a bunch of other facts you know, too. From this information, you try your best to kind of picture what your father is like. Can you say, well, because he's in the military, he must be brave? You've heard that from your mom anyway. Uh, you've been told he's handsome, and from the pictures you've seen, it seems that he is. Okay. You assume that he's friendly and fun, but maybe stern too, because again, military. You build all sorts of characteristics into your father. At that point, you know some things about your father that are true, but you don't really know your father. But then imagine your father is released from the POW camp and comes home, and you meet him for the first time. Now in an entirely new way, you're really getting to know your father. What God does here in answering Job's demand for an explanation with a revelation instead is he shows up giving him and us a deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge of just who he is. And when this happens, this results in humility. Listen to what Job says in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, after Job reveals his power, or after God reveals his power. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Another way of saying, I am shutting this thing. <laughs> I shut my trap. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Again, as God questions Job, he responds in chapter 42, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Do you hear that? When God reveals himself, complete and utter humility comes over the sinner. You see, in our, in our natural pride, all we really want is to have control. 
or at least to pretend like we have it. So we demand an explanation from God for whatever we're going through because the explanation gives us a sense that we're in control again. It's something we all do. But what God shows us is that only he gets to have that control. Only he gets to determine the course of our days, not us. Only he gets to call the shots. As Job says, there are two wonderful, there are things too wonderful for me. And yet this is incredibly difficult. A uh, while back, Brandy Mitriff, contributing to an article on Mockingbird, described loss of control this way. She said, quote, loss of control is not an amusement park ride. It is death, dismemberment, famine, enmity, destruction, financial loss, and horrifying social situations that make you wish to God you'd stay home with a cat on your lap, I would say dog, instead of venturing into the greater world. It is falling asleep at the wheel and having the trailer of a semi shear off the top of your car along with your head. The root of the desire for control is fear, and fear in this world is not without cause. And yet she continues. The sad irony is that the point of control is to protect something, but too much control is destructive. To eliminate all risk is to smother life itself. Reminds me of a fairly well-known C.S. Lewis quote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And I would add, to live is to be vulnerable. To live is to be vulnerable. There is no life without the threat of risk and harm and suffering. It's part of what it is to be a creature. And what God does in suffering is he causes us against our natural selves to accept the fact that this is not our universe. It's his. And this brings humility in such a way that our very hearts are exposed to him who sees all. And that leads to repentance. So Job's final words in the whole story, the final words of Job, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now this is interesting because throughout the whole book we're shown Job is innocent. Not perfect, but not suffering because of guilt. And even God will, will go on to proclaim Job hasn't said anything wrong about him this whole time and he calls him, quote, his servant. Nevertheless, when man comes in contact with the holy, he is repented. We see the same thing happen to Isaiah in chapter 6 of his book. You probably are familiar with this, the commissioning of Isaiah when he's brought into the presence of the holy of holies. Of, he's, uh, he sees the angels flying around and they're saying th three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what happens to Isaiah? He's brought to repentance, falls on his knees and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I need, I need help. See the same thing in the New Testament with Peter? 
Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. One of the passages, by the way, I'm writing about in uh, Dan and I's new book, coming soon. Um, Peter gets a glimpse of that same power. After he and his buddy's been fishing all night, Jesus says, put your net on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, I don't think that's going to work. We've been doing this all night. But because I guess, you know, you said so, I'll try it. And they get this amazing catch of fish. And what happens? Peter is not amazed and asks, I mean, he's amazed, but he, he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. That's what happens when God gives us a revelation of himself and our suffering. His aim is to bring us to the point where we renounce ourselves and throw ourselves upon his mercy. And this leads us to hope. When God gives us a who instead of a why, eventually it makes us accept God for God. We can stop trying to figure him out and all of his mysterious ways. We don't have to try and look past the hidden, unrevealed God. We are forced to accept what he has chosen to reveal and what he, has, and what he hasn't for that matter. And then having nothing left, God acts counterintuitively to us. He shows us mercy and restores hope. In Isaiah's case, instantly upon his confession of unclean lips, God's angelic hosts are sent to clean his lips and make him presentable before God. Instantly when Peter asked for the Lord to depart for him, the Lord responded, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men, Peter. And with our man Job, in the end, he too is the recipient of mercy. Text tells us the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. What would cause God to dispense such mercy? Well, simply put, because another one, his very own son, would go through the ultimate suffering in the world's place. In his life, he too was a man of sorrows. But unlike Job and us, he did not complain, but accepted it willfully. As a sheep goes to its shears, is silent, so it was with him. As he contemplated his suffering, he would pray for any other way, but in the final analysis said, not my will, but thy will be done. As he was led to the cross, he did not say a word in his defense, even though he was offered to do such a thing. And even as he would scream out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would conclude by saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because he endured the ultimate suffering, yet rose from the dead, we can be confident that he will give us the strength to endure the suffering that comes upon us in this life. Because even though he may not reveal the answer to the why, he does reveal the answer to the who. And that is enough as we look forward to a day where the suffering will end and the resurrection will live, will go on forever. Then we will say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So, what does God give us in response to our suffering? Rarely, if ever, does he give us the answer to why. But always and forever, he gives us the who. And that, that is enough. God bless you folks. Uh, let me know if there's a book you'd like me to start up next week. Um, 
unless you say something like First Chronicles, uh, I'll be open to it. Not, I don't have anything against First Chronicles. I just don't know it real well. Uh, but uh, let me know if you have anything, any thoughts on what we should do. Hope you have a great week. God bless. See you later.